I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast for accelerated learning. Hey everyone, welcome back to Mission Daily. And in this week, you know we are focusing on the past and present and the future. And we're doing that in a really interesting way. We're starting with evolutionary psychology. So yesterday's interview, we talked with Jeffrey. And in today's interview, we're talking with another leading researcher in the field of evolutionary psychology. That is Diana Fleischman. So Diana is a evolutionary psychologist at the University of Portsmouth. And her research interests revolve around hormonal influences on behavior, human sexuality, disgust, and recently the interface of evolutionary psychology and behaviorism. This is a fascinating interview. We talk a lot about Diana's research, what she's excited about right now, uh, how she thinks about interacting with her students, and how she thinks about spreading the message in a broad sense of there are major problems in the world and you can design your work life and your personal life to help solve these problems. This is a really great interview, and I think that anyone who listens is going to get some ideas for their own life on how they can improve themselves, how they can expand their mind, and maybe avoid some of the biases that we've picked up on our evolutionary journey. So without further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hey everyone, welcome to Mission Daily. Today's guest is Diana Fleischmann, which means meat man in German, right? That's right. Yeah, in German. Which is a bit odd because you're kind of like the anti-meat woman superhero. Is that a, a fair <laughs> is that a fair characterization? Also, Diana is the goddess of the hunt and of chastity. So I'm also like a sex researcher. That's all very awkward. And then my middle name is Santos, where my mother's side, which means saint. So the whole thing is wow. you know, irony, irony in a name. That is a union of opposites to the max there. That's that's crazy. So have you have you thought about changing your last name at all? Or is it did that never cross your mind? I was really, really close to my paternal grandfather, Walter. And, you know, I got my name from him. And so, yeah, I have a thought, you know, especially now thinking about writing a book and stuff like that. I'm like, is Fleischman, at least it's not Czech, you know, it doesn't have like a lot of strange consonants in it. But no, I did think about changing my name to something a little bit easier to pronounce and to spell, but it's a little too late now. I think I've already published under this name for 15 years. I think it's too late. Would changing it as you go into publishing books be something, maybe, maybe there's something there because you've published, I think, what is it like 40 or 50 academic papers under your current name? Well, like 20 to 30, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah it looked, uh, yeah, I was, I was checking out the list. It's uh, it's really impressive to say the least. So where did you first start researching? When did science get on your radar? Um, were you young? When did it happen? Yeah, I was really, really crazy about science from a really young age. And my parents bought me a book called The Evolution Book by this woman named Sarah Stein. And I carried it around with me like a teddy bear. I was obsessed with it. I was obsessed with evolution. I just took it with me everywhere, even though it was quite a big book. And when I was a kid, I used to go horseback riding into this farm with my dad. And I would see all these animals, the way that they grew up. And I thought for a long time about being a veterinarian. And I was really interested in animal behavior and about how for example, horses are trained. I was just really fascinated by all that. And my dad's family, we were never butchers. We were horse breakers. So my grandpa's family, they got a hundred horses a week in 
and broke them and sold them. That was what they did in, in Germany. And then my grandfather obviously had to leave because of World War II and Nazis and stuff like that. And so I also grew up in Georgia, which was, I grew up in a county where they didn't teach evolution in schools. And I was always a contrarian from a really young age, really into getting under people's skin, especially if I had this, I had this truth focus. And so I started not welcome in public schools generally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, truth and pushing back is not something that they uh, encourage, but no, they sure don't. So I was obsessed with evolution and I talked about it in school and I had creationist teachers and they would tell the students, Oh, you know, Diane is talking about something, but evolution is just a theory. And it's like, it's not just a theory. It's, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's true. And what else do you have to explain things? And so I started being called monkey girl when I was like 11, 12, I was teased mercilessly for espousing evolution. <laughs> so crazy. And rather than actually turning me off from it, it actually made me more excited about it. And recently there's been people talking about, you know, what they teach in public schools in various places. And obviously I think it's important, for example, for people to get sex education and things like that. But I think that if somebody's really passionate about something, especially now that there's the internet and even I just had libraries, we really didn't have the internet. I was, it was like in the nineties, right? I think you can't keep somebody passionate, especially a young mind who's passionate about something you can't keep that away from them. So I think it's important, but I don't think that the the great minds of the next generation are going to be held back just by what is and isn't taught in school. In some ways, I think the uh, aggressive, basically like critique and attacks from public schools and public school teachers when they criticize something that's new or science-oriented or data-based I have a lot of hope for the future generation because they're going to be able to immediately go to the internet and start to see, is this person telling me the truth or are they lying? And it's a great thing because young people now can see this for themselves. And I think when you and I were growing up, we probably had a bit harder time pushing back against authority with the truth, or we had a harder time arguing maybe. So let's let's talk about that for a second. Were you contrarian against everything? Were you pushing back against teachers? family like what yeah what was the your big like fight against when you were young i just had yeah so many fights against so much stuff but yeah my mother was catholic my dad came from a kind of jewish family i went to synagogue and i went to church when i was a kid and my brother decided he was an atheist when he was like six or seven something silly and i actually was first communion before i decided i didn't want to go to church anymore so I became pretty secularized at that point. And perhaps it was because of the mixture of religions. I'm not really sure what happened. But I come from, you know, my mother's family is Portuguese. My dad's family is German and Jewish. And there's this idea about, you know, the culture of Jewish households, which is you argue over dinner about various different topics. You talk about things and there is a kind of heated exchange. And there's also in Portuguese culture, just a lot of good natured teasing and ribbing and stuff like that. And so we always had these kinds of exchanges in my household at my dinner table, even though there was only four of us, you'd have to almost interrupt somebody to get a word in edgewise. We were very, very outspoken. And that just really set me up to engage with the world. I mean, I think I was that way, obviously genetically, but that was really calibrated even more, you know, in my, in my growing up. So 
I also had a mom who had really bad obsessive compulsive disorder and, you know, props to her. She got much better over the course of my childhood, but she was really afraid that I was getting kidnapped. She was really afraid of disease. And I spent a lot of time arguing with her, obviously, not to really great effect about how much she should be scared for me because I really wanted my freedom and I wanted to be able to go out and play Mm -hmm. with other kids and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I had a lot of, yeah, conflict in that way in my childhood. I love that you brought up the fact that your family was arguing and then kind of like roasting each other, laughing, having a good time at the dinner table, because I, I think in our modern day culture and in modernity, people are terrified of arguments, especially with people they they love. They associate arguments with what ends things instead of what builds things. Could you talk a little bit about how you were able to, and if you were, I don't, I don't know, were you able to become closer with your family through that that type of like argument or basically like arguing in general? Were you able to get to know them better? Yeah, I don't think that people talk about teasing enough, like teasing as in, you know, this kind of good natured thing. Obviously, teasing can go too far and it can become abusive. I definitely have family members who take it too far. But in the the book that I'm working on right now, I talk a little bit about teasing because I don't think people mention it enough. So there's a New York Times article from several years back, which is called In Praise of Teasing. And I think teasing does a really a lot of things that are really super useful. So for example, if I offend you just a little bit, but it's in the context of teasing and we're having a playful discussion and I tell you, uh, you know, my father always used to say like, oh, there's too much fat on this meat, like between your ears or call me a pinhead or whatever the case may be, right? It actually trains you to recover from insults more easily. And all, you know, you know, it happens that somebody will be hungry or sleep deprived or whatever, and they'll say something that they don't mean. And if you're used to engaging in teasing interactions with people where they say stuff to you like that, like in that playful, insulting way, and you're used to recovering from that, it's much easier to also recover if somebody says something they don't mean because they're just having a bad day, right? When you don't tease each other. So for example, Jeffrey, who you guys had on, he's my boyfriend. He comes from this kind of Midwestern family and they didn't tease each other. Basically, if we were on a car trip in my family, we'd spend the whole time you know, making fun of each other, whereas his family didn't really do that. And I had to kind of teach him how. And now he's a real, you know, evangelist for it. He's like, I think really teasing is really important. And it's helped me take offense a lot less, as well as it just helps you kind of tamp down your anger. And there's a lot of things that you can say in a playful way that you can't say in a genuine way. So my mother is Portuguese. And if I had come from the gym or I had been hot outside, I would come in. My mother called me repuzinha. Rapuzinha is like a little fox in heat. <laughs> She's like a oh, snowy, wow. little fox, right? And if yeah. my mom, if, if I had come home from working out or being outside or whatever, my mother would just been like, you smell? That would have been <laughs> offensive. But for her to call me like a fuzzy little woodland animal, that's fine. I still know that I smell either way. <laughs> but one of them is funny and the other one isn't. And so, yeah, that's the thing about humor is that you can tell people difficult truths. And right. this kind of sensitive culture that we're bringing up where – I don't know what it's like to be in public school these days, but I certainly was teased a lot in school and I had a thicker skin and I was able to more forcefully think about, you know, talk about what I believed in because of this interaction that I had at home. But I do think people are missing out if they don't understand this. In Portuguese, you call that insulta carinhosa, which is an affectionate insult. And even other animals express how close they are 
So there's some strange monkey, I can't remember the name of it, where they will actually put their fingers in each other's eye sockets to greet each other. And the the thing that they're saying to each the other is, I trust hook. you yeah. so much. Yeah, I trust you so much that I'm willing to let you do something that you could damage me with. And the same way is hmm. you, you show somebody the kind of intimacy and close relationship you have with them by saying something that if a stranger said to them, they would be insulted. Yeah, that's really fascinating. I think we're tempted sometimes to provide just quick analytical feedback or rational type feedback with people. And that type of you know unsolicited critique or idea, it never, it never goes over well. Um, I think even with the best intentions, without some type of humor or brevity, it's just going to get lost. And it's so important because, so I come from a culture where my family didn't do this. And then I got to the military and in the military, this is, so I was in an infantry, uh, all guys unit. And this is something that it's the only way you're going to survive and have any type of good time when you are doing the things you're doing, um, because you have to point out errors in behavior, errors in professionalism and things like that in a way that's funny. And if you don't do it, your chances of survival are going to fall. So I think that this is how we go about building culture and tribes that are healthy. But like you were saying, it's getting left out of popular culture now. I know there are many reasons for this and, and why questions are difficult, but why do you think our culture is becoming more and more sensitive and more opposed to comedy or insults? I'm not 100% sure. I read the uh, American Psychological Association guidelines for men and boys, and I was actually really disheartened to see that they had something about teasing in there where they were saying men make fun of each other and engage with in this particular way. And the implication, they didn't come right out and say it, was that this was a way that men were avoiding talking about their feelings, which would be a better way of getting at what was actually bothering them. And so some people have said that there's this feminization of culture or that therapy culture is saying there's one right way of relating to other people and that's a feminine way of relating to other people. But I do think that there's huge individual differences and cultural differences in how people relate. And if you think about emotional damage or the pain that people inflict on each other just from talking as something that you should definitely avoid. You know, Jonathan Haidt talks about this in the, in the coddling of the American mind. There's obviously two different ways of thinking about social interactions. You don't want a kid, you know, to be bullied and teased mercilessly, but obviously that's not something that you can completely avoid. And I would argue that it's actually really good. It's helped me develop a thick skin. And certainly my home environment also helped me develop a thick skin. So if you are basically always thinking about the common denominator as being the most sensitive person, and there's a, a concept in law I learned about recently, which is called an eggshell eggshell plaintiff. Just hmm. if, some, if a crime happens to a certain kind of person, it can ruin their entire lives. So for some people, they would get mugged and they would just never want to go outside again. But for the average person who'd get mugged, they would feel terrible for a while, but then right. they would ultimately get, get over it. And I don't think you should punish a mugger to the level of the person who'd be most damaged by a mugging. And I think that that's kind of the common denominator that we're thinking about. And, you know, in terms of the civilizing process stuff that Pinker talks about, it's great that we're thinking about how to make our society more gentle, how to help people out who are sensitive. But obviously I think things can go too far and I think they have gone too far. Do you think that certain people who are really advocating for this coddling and ultra comfy lifestyles do you think that their motives are pure or do you think that their motives are driven by 
uh, the desire to exploit and have a class of people that is just completely subservient and, you know, willing to turn to them for help at a moment's notice? Like, do you think that there's anything nefarious going on or do you think that this is just what happens in capitalistic, like late stage capitalistic countries? I just try and take people's true motives as their as their true motives. So I talked a little bit on Twitter. This is another conversation that got in, that got heated on Twitter recently about um how you know I myself think abortion should be legal, but I do understand the pro life argument. And there was a woman on Twitter making a case that all the pro life arguments are actually colonialist, pro white, um, religious, and misogynistic. They're all anti woman. And I was just saying, like, if you take a good faith interpretation of anybody's argument, you, you won't see that. If you take a good faith interpretation of people's desire to help the society be more sensitive to people, I don't think people are trying to make a class of people who are more exploitable. I think that that's kind of some next level thing. And I, I don't know if anybody would be able to have that in mind. Uh, there's this guy named uh, Rob Kurzban, and he's shown that, for example, the best predictor of whether or not somebody is against drug legalization is actually their attitudes towards promiscuous sex, their attitudes towards casual sex. So if somebody's really against drug legalization, uh, they also tend to be very, very against casual sex. And so what his argument is actually that people are against drug legalization because they think it will lead to this thing that they have a moral problem with. And they might not know that kind of consciously. In terms of this sensitization or this, this way that we're trying to make society gentler and not have gentle, whatever, good-natured ribbing or teasing or anything like that. I just don't know what the ultimate goal will be other than the idea that there's a therapy culture idea that can cause you know, really pervasive problems for somebody if they're emotionally hurt in some way. And, you know, I guess I'll take a good faith explanation of that. But if people are really trying to avoid that, I think that they've gone uh, too far. But I don't know if people are always aware of their, you know, their whatever you might call underlying motivations. But I do think it's a dangerous game to always be trying to think of, you know, the worst possible explanation or to not take somebody's arguments in good faith because people will do that selectively with people that they don't like. So it's yep. really common in this kind of culture war day and age for people to say endorsing all kinds of different positions are, you know, racist or misogynistic or colonialist, or whatever the case may be, and then they don't advocate that kind of bad faith interpretation consistently across the board as, you know, what is the worst reason that somebody might have to endorse any particular view. So yeah, I think a good faith interpretation is pretty important to take without any kind of contradictory evidence. And we'll talk more about whatever, me being vegan, probably in a bit, but ironically, being vegan has made me way more tolerant because there's so many people I love and admire who eat meat despite thinking that animal suffering matters and despite thinking their individual choices matter and despite being just good people generally. And so I've really expanded my view to think that people can have all kinds of views that are not really in alignment with their highest moral ideals. It's a process, right? Like any type of change might take years in some individuals and individuals that are eating meat now, but maybe want to change in the future or are open to it, they might be heading in that direction. And that brings us to a really important concept and idea. Are you familiar with the phrase steel manning? So instead of straw manning an argument, you steel man. Yeah, this, this is something that, because it's very easy to attra uh, attribute 
nefarious motives and things like that, it's much more difficult to start to argue for an opposing side of the argument. And what I've found when I do this or try to be a little bit more thoughtful about it is I start to see the other side as a group of humans and they instantly become way more relatable. So can you talk a little bit about how you think about steel manning and maybe how you're going about navigating your career, your job in a way that's harmonious instead of you know, making enemies every every day? <laughs> I think that being the kind of person who tries to take good faith motivations or who whatever plays devil's advocate or who thinks about things in a kind of dispassionate way, unfortunately also makes enemies, right? People will think mm-hmm. that you're not in allegiance enough to the kind of in-group. I was at a Longhorns football game when I was at UT Austin and our team, you know, was losing really, really badly. And I was joking with my friend next to me. I was like, I'll just pretend I'm rooting for the other team and then I'll be happy. And she just thought that that was the worst thing that she'd ever heard. So I think that's kind of equivalent is people just think that you you know, you lack loyalty. So you have to be careful. Even still, man, you have to be You just want to do it in your head. You just want to do it in your head uh, quietly alone. So tell me a little bit about your job and how you view it and your professional life. Is it uh, something you like to talk about when somebody asks, what do you do? Or yeah, what do you generally respond with? I've heard about people who say, oh, I don't tell people what I really do because then they have all kinds of views on things. And I I, I always tell people I'm an evolutionary psychologist and then people tend to be really curious about it. People who don't, you know, already know about it. I really love my job and I am in the really enviable position of being a public intellectual to get invited to just shoot the breeze with people like you and to have people listen to me, you know, regardless of the topic we're we've already gone through many different topics in this particular conversation. So I'm just really, really lucky in, in that respect. And I'm also lucky, especially with things right now, like a, the project students to be able to, help young people think critically and to teach them things that are important. I have no delusions that I'm going to teach my students anything that they're going to remember for the rest of their lives. But certainly I hope that I can foster a a healthy sense of curiosity, intellectual curiosity that they can take with them and also a healthy sense of skepticism that they can take with them throughout their lives. So yeah, this kind of public intellectual also being a lecturer and being able to be invited places to give public lectures. If I was to talk to my nine-year-old self, she would be thrilled with my life right now. And to kind of pursue any idea that catches my fancy, you know, I'm going to be giving a talk on evolutionary psychology and animal ethics. And then the following month, I'm going to be giving a talk about kind of behaviorism and the concept of control. Why are we as humans so against the idea that there are rules that we can make that can predict people's behavior perfectly? I think that really people are really ambivalent about the psychological enterprise. They don't want to think that we are determined in the way that all animals and the whole universe is determined. Yeah. So that's, that's all I can say is that, you know, in terms of an effective altruism kind of perspective, I think that being a public intellectual does give you a lot of free reign to do many different things. And I am pretty excited about talking about, you know, whatever I'm into because I get to pursue my passions intellectually whenever I want. And you mentioned your project students. So when I was in college, the only course I liked was basically like a project type course where I got to design the curriculum, get it approved by my favorite professor. And that was one course that stuck with me out of all of them. And the waste that was college, that was the one course where I was like, okay, this, this makes me feel good. 
And uh, I felt better about myself after I'd gone through the course. So tell us a little bit about your project students and what that is like for you and what, and what they're up to. Yeah. So this year we had a lot of project students. So in the third year here, because there's just the undergraduate degree is done in three years, um, students can choose to do a particular project. And I have like a list of somewhat easy ideas because they don't, they don't get money to pay participants. We have to do something that you can do either online or in kind of a laboratory study. And so the students that work with me are students who either liked my lectures or liked some subject matter that I, that I talked about in lectures or whatever. And a couple of the ideas, the things that I supervised this year that I was most excited about was one woman who took a year off to work for the Food Standards Agency here in the UK. Uh, she did something about how disgust affects the, you know, or the participants' view of what's called clean meat or also called in vitro meat. So meat that's grown in, it's actually going to be grown in, in like a large processing facility rather than off the back of an animal. And so looking at that and whether or not people knew very much about that, I was super excited about that. I have another student who uh, was looking at pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. So in the future, it's going to be possible for you to maybe make, you know, some embryos and then choose which one you would like to give birth to. And it's also going to be possible for people who have various kinds of health conditions or whatever to be able to, to use that technology in order to have healthy babies. People are already using those kinds of things. And it's really important to know whether or not the general public is on board with that kind of stuff. And if you look at the kind of general public's view, she did a study that was different than what previous studies have done. So previous studies have asked people, would you be in favor of pre-implantation uh, genetic diagnosis? if it was used to improve somebody's appearance or improve their athleticism or improve their intelligence or to keep them from getting certain diseases. Whereas she asked people a specific question like Joe and Betty, you know, have a predisposition for bowel cancer in their family. They choose a, uh, an embryo that doesn't have this predisposition. How wrong is that? And I thought that that was a much better way of getting the average person to give you a view than asking people kind of in the abstract, which was what was done before. And we found some pretty similar views. It's very, very interesting. She also, my student asked some questions that I don't think anybody previously has asked, although I'm not, I don't know all of the literature. But for example, if uh, two people who are partially sighted or blind, they want to have a child who's also partially sighted or blind because they want to feel closer to that child. Um, is that moral or immoral? If two parents who are deaf or hard of hearing would like to have a child who has that same condition, should that be allowed? And it seems like people think it's just as immoral for blind or partially sighted parents to have a partially sighted child as they think it is for parents to have a child selectively who's got blue eyes or who is very tall or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when it comes down to things like um, reducing the chance of Alzheimer's or other kinds of physical disabilities, diseases, not disabilities, people seem to be on board with that and to think that was fairly moral. And the more educated we, you know, we found that the more educated we had participants, the more likely they were to think that it was okay to do this kind of um, genetic screening. But, you know, it's going to be a reality. There's going to be places in the world where people do it. And I think that, you know, in China, for example, they're already thinking about genetically engineering offspring. It's going to be something that our society is going to have to grapple with. And so those were my, probably my favorite couple of projects this year. And then I have another student. One thing I'm really curious about is how well people can predict the preferences of other people. Hmm. Uh, and it, it's also part of the, the book that I'm working on as well. 
And so that's, you know, how good are people at rewarding and punishing people? And so we had two projects, one where people had to predict things that would be aversive to their romantic partner, and another one where people had to predict what was going to be reinforcing to their romantic partner. And one study that I'll be presenting at a conference in May actually shows that the better people are at reading facial expressions, the better they are at knowing the things that their partner likes and dislikes, you know, from food to holidays to various pastimes. And that work hasn't, you know, it's, there's not very much work on that already. And I think it's pretty interesting. That's so cool. And every topic you just brought up is something that it can be hard to consider it. It can be easy to say, okay, the experts are going to take care of this, but I think everybody needs to start thinking about these things and start weighing in on them with their ideas. Because I think with all of these things, it's a situation where we need more ideas, more diverse experiences brought to the table, because some of this stuff is, it's happening right now, whether you like it or not. I got back from a conference last year with one of the guys that was there was the co-founder of a uh, biotech company. They're genetically engineering embryos. And he has a huge tattoo of uh, from Gattaca on his side. And he's committed. He's going to be doing this the rest of his life. And there are many other people out there like him, maybe sans Gattaca tattoo, but he's a really nice guy. But I think that it's important that we start having these conversations with people. When you bring this stuff up with your parents or your family or maybe acquaintances, I'm, I'm really curious, what what is their response? And yeah, do you get a lot of pushback or what do they say? I do talk to some acquaintances about this kind of stuff. Generally, the kind of people I associate with are in favor of that kind of stuff. My parents, I stopped trying to talk to them about my work a while back. Yeah. I have, you know, I have smart parents. I think that they they endowed me with a lot of my intelligence. But you know, my brother um, does like public defendant stuff. Like he's a public defender. He works in law, and I work in psychology. And I think if you were to ask my parents, like on a fine grained kind of analysis level, you know, what we do. I don't really know if they'd be able to tell you. They have. They just haven't expressed a huge amount of interest. And it was actually partly, you know, when I became vegan and I was really like, what do they call vegangelical? And I was really strident. and I was trying to tell everybody, you know, this great thing that I had discovered and how uninterested my parents were in it and how resistant they were to it. And I just thought, if I can't convince people who are closest to me, who have the most in common with me of this particular thing, then what hope really is there? And it really gave me more temperance about what I think about, you know, changing the world and changing people's minds. So yeah, in terms of pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, people have really widely different views. Obviously there's a, an education, quite a controversial figure here in the UK, whose name is um, Toby Young. And he said that really poor people, you know, cause one, one, controversial issue about this particular technology is that wealthy people are going to have access to it, but poor people are not. And so what he was saying is that very poor people actually should have first dibs on this technology. They should get subsidies so that they can have the best children that they can possibly have. And I thought that that was like a pretty nice thing to say, but people right away accused him of being a, a eugenicist and had a massive problem with, with what he was talking about. Yeah, very, very complex issues, but I'm really interested in knowing, you know, where this public opinion is coming from, maybe in the hopes of seeing where it goes in the future. So a little bit of a tangent, but it's related here. If I was to present the argument that with any type of technology like this, it's typically the rich people that end up subsidizing it for poor people. How would you respond? Because it's easy to look at something like Theranos or anything like that and say, uh, you know, Elizabeth Holmes raised $1.4 billion or she stole it and it was a fraud and everything like that. 
but you know, $1.4 billion, it won't even get you a new FDA approved drug. So as horrible as some entrepreneurs and rich people are, in a way, they're basically subsidizing the future and technologies for all of us. Do you have that type of like glowing view about them? Or what do you think about the creations of new technologies? Everybody, everybody gets, gets lucky. You know, some people who are interested in social justice will say how unfair it is for wealthy people to, you know, buy their kids into university or to bribe certain people so that they can get, or, or, you know, or to be raised in an environment where you're meeting people who can help you out like venture capitalists right away and getting into businesses like that. Yeah, that's true. And those are kind of things that are not evenly distributed that people don't have access to, but other things that are not evenly distributed are intelligence and conscientiousness. I didn't make myself as, you know, the the IQ that I have, the conscientiousness that I have, my extroverted personality is all stuff that I didn't make, you know, and Mm -hmm. and my, my, I was endowed with that. And so I think that when you talk about people being lucky, I think actually people don't go far enough when they're talking about how people are lucky. You know, Sam Harris makes this point all the time. Even people talk about hard work. Hard work is important, but your ability to work hard is not due to you, right? You can try and engineer environments. I have like five apps on my computer that are meant to help me save time and try to monitor what I'm doing in my day because I know that I have a certain weakness of will when it comes to certain kinds of at least parts of the day, post-lunch, whatever the case may be. Yeah, it's, it's great, I think, if wealthier people subsidize other people in these domains because wealthier people are, you know, they might be lucky from coming from a good family or they might be lucky in terms of what their family gave them genetically. There's all kinds of ways that people arrive at luck, but we can take that out of the equation, I think, with technology in the future. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think the interesting and exciting thing that's happening right now, too, is that the technology and venture capital community is starting to find or gravitate closer to people like yourself and people in the effective altruism movement. And that's really exciting for me because in a way, I think it's going to be the engine and the execution of a lot of the goals of effective altruism. So I'm not that familiar with the the movement and community. I have lived in the Bay Area for almost three years now, so I'm start, starting to get caught up to speed. But how do you define the EA movement? And uh, do you consider yourself a part of it? You showed me your uh, voting card earlier. It says EA. So I guess that's a... <laughs> um, yeah, I definitely consider myself part of the effective altruism movement. It is difficult to absolutely define. Obviously, in any movement, there's going to be some tension between saying, you know, we want to have the biggest possible church possible or saying, actually, we want people who are dedicated to specific ideas involved in our, in our movement. But I think that anybody who donates 10% of their income or 10% of their time to any kind of thing that they think does the most good in some domain, I mm-hmm. think be able to consider themselves an effective altruist. People who have a certain commitment to trying to engage in yeah, charitable ventures, trying to help human flourishing, trying to help improve the lot uh, of the world in some uh, particular way. And they've thought carefully about different approaches to those problems and how to do good better, which is the title of Will's book. You're going to be talking to Will McCaskill as well, right? Yep. Yep. So that's, that's kind of how I would define it. And uh, I got involved in effective altruism back in 2013. And I've been mostly involved in animal ethics, trying to reduce animal suffering aspect of it, more so than things like 
uh, cause prioritization or the reduction of existential risk or reducing global poverty, which are some of the other streams that people talk about a lot. And I think it's important to start with reducing suffering because I don't see how people are going to be able to band together to really solve existential risks until they aren't suffering as much as they are. And whether it's animals or people, how do you view suffering and how did you, you know, did you become interested in suffering after you came to grips with it in your own life or after you did some like some personal work or were you already interested in the suffering of animals and other other people? I grew up around animals, so I had a really easy, intuitive, empathic link with animals when I was a kid, but I also ate like five things. So it was very difficult for me to put into practice anything that I was interested in morally, like becoming vegetarian. And when I was in my early 20s, I watched tons of factory farming videos and I thought, if these don't make me Hmm. feel bad, then there's no need for me to become vegetarian. It was actually Peter Singer, who's one of the main people in effective altruism. It was actually his book, Animal Liberation, that made me go vegan the next day. I went vegan the day after I read that book about 10 years ago. So I think that 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 to me uh, was really compelling. And it was compelling to me because from an evolutionary perspective, you can't necessarily say that obviously animals suffer the same way that, that humans do. I think that human complexity probably means that humans suffer more than non-human animals. But non-human animals, you know, just by virtue of them not being human, their suffering is, is important. Uh, Richard Dawkins talks about this kind of thought experiment, which is, you know, what if all of the other hominid species like Neanderthals and the hobbit people, whatever, all of those people really existed, but they weren't human, how would you perceive them? And I would put to people another question, which is just because these people, you know, wouldn't be human, just because these animals, human-like animals wouldn't be human, would you say that their suffering didn't count at all? And people who've endorsed things like the Great Ape Project, which says that, you know, gorillas and chimps and bonobos should have something like human rights have endorsed these kinds of ideas. So yeah, I've always been really focused on, on animal suffering, both from an evolutionary perspective, but also my uh, connection to non-human animals. And back in, yeah, a few, several years ago, I was involved in a lot of vegan activism stuff, not really marches and things, but I had a podcast and I was blogging and I was just really frustrated by the lack of, goal-mindedness of the vegan movement. People have been pushing the idea that people should be vegan or vegetarian for decades, and yet the amount of people who are vegan and vegetarian hasn't budged. And doctors have gotten on board too and told everybody in the Western world, like, you should be eating less meat. You know, I'm not going to argue any Mm -hmm. kind of health claims, but certainly doctors have been telling people to eat less meat for a long time, and yet we've been seeing people eat more and more meat, and we haven't really seen major gains in the amount of of vegans and vegetarians. And so it seemed to me that as passionate as the community that I was in before I got into effective altruism was, they weren't actually making any strides. And they certainly weren't thinking in any kind of nuanced way. So to the kinds of vegans that I was hanging out with at that time, they wouldn't actually see any difference between somebody who was just eating dairy or just eating eggs, or somebody who hunted their own meat, or anything like that, right? To them, any animal death was wrong, and they weren't actually thinking about suffering in a quantitative way that I have seen in the effective animal activism movement that I've gotten involved in. So what I really tell people now is most people who are vegetarian do eat some amount of meat, 
they eat um, chicken and eggs and, and fish. Most people who say they're vegetarian do. And yet those are the foods that actually cause the most suffering. Jordan Peterson has talked about his diet. I think he just eats beef and only beef every day. Um, yeah, I've heard it. And ironically, uh, a vegetarian who eats three eggs a day is causing more suffering with their diet than Jordan Peterson is causing with his beef only diet because wow. beef cattle live pretty good lives. They wander around. They have one really bad day, obviously, the day that they do, that they die. But egg-laying hens have really terrible lives. And in the United States, it's, it's much, much worse. And also, some things that I was seeing in terms of technology, like the advent of clean meat or certain industries that were trying to make milk in ways that didn't involve a cow or make eggs. You know, for example, there's some company now that's trying to make powdered eggs that you can use in industrial production without any chickens, right? The kind of thing that will bind as well as eggs do, that would just reduce a huge amount of suffering because mm -hmm. it would just reduce the amount of, of hens that we have in the world. And yet it didn't actually seem like the people in the community that I was in, you know, before I was involved in effective altruism, cared about outcomes like that. They didn't seem to be supportive of things like clean meat because they thought, well, it's still meat. We shouldn't have people eating it anyway. When you became a vegan, if you had to look at the process you went through or however long it took, you mentioned it was like, you know, you read the book Animal Liberation and the next day you were a vegan. How would you recommend that people get into it or how would you recommend that people explore it? I have been really touting the idea that people should consider their, what I call the suffering footprint. So people talk about carbon footprint a lot, but I don't think people are really talking about suffering footprint. And there's a blog that I've been referencing over and over again, this guy named Brian Tomasic who's got a blog called Reducing Suffering, and he does a calculation about how many days of suffering are involved in various different animal products. And a vegan diet is not completely without suffering. Obviously, there are crops, and when you eat crops, especially vegetable crops, animals die incidentally, even though you're not eating them directly, in the process of, of crop production. And so what I would say that people should do is to try to think about how to minimize their suffering footprint. Obviously, I think a vegan diet minimizes the suffering footprint the most, right? But what I've been encouraging people to do, which I've had much more success with than I ever had, I tried to convince people to go vegan for many years when I was like a hardcore vegan, right? And now I just say, why don't you just stop eating chicken or stop eating eggs? Or if you stop eating chicken, eggs, and fish, you're reducing the number of days of suffering you cause by like 90% because those animals are very small and they don't provide very many calories per day of suffering that they endure. And of course, you can make arguments like, I think a cow is more complex than a chicken, but mm -hmm. I don't think it's 200 times more complex than a chicken. There's obviously uncertainty morally in these kinds of calculations. And some people are offended, you know, some vegans that I know are offended merely by the idea that you can quantify suffering and that you should think about it in this way. But of course, I think people should because vegans are just trying to eat a diet that reduces suffering as much as possible. And everybody can do that to some extent if they're just mindful about their uh, particular choices. So again, yeah, that was just something that I found really frustrating. And now, you know, looking at sort of effective animal activism, we are potentially going to see meat that is real meat that's grown without animals in several years. It's going to be on, on the market. And if you can make that cheaper and tastier, mm -hmm. then those people are going to do more to reduce suffering than the vegan movement ever has in its entire history. I definitely agree. And what about the idea that a lot of the animals that have been used for meat or eggs or anything like that, 
they've been domesticated over a period of, uh, you know, there's multiple generations where in a sense they're crippled and they're not, or maybe they're able to thrive in the wild. What's the best way to kind of like, how can we redeem ourselves as, as humans? And should we let them be wild? Should we let them be free? Should there be a, like a halfway house uh, before they're free type thing? Like what, what is it? It's fascinating to me when I make this kind of vegan argument People always imagine that everybody's going to go vegan overnight and that there's going to be billions of animals that got like nowhere to be, right? They're looking for work. Yeah. If I said like people should jog on a Saturday morning, nobody's like, oh my God, what if everybody jogs on a Saturday morning? It would be pandemonium. The streets would be yeah. full of joggers, right? Obviously, that's not. Um, I, obviously, I think that the d- d- demand is going to reduce gradually. I've certainly met people who said, you know, even if there was cheaper, better, alternatives to meat on the market, I would still want to eat meat from a dead animal because that's what my father and my father's father ate. And that's, you know, what I think is healthier and better. So I do think that domesticated animals are going to reduce in quantity, right? You know, whatever last year was 2017, actually 63 billion chickens worldwide were killed. I think there's something like a billion cows on the planet right now. There's obviously a lot of animals that are much more endangered than, than sure, those particular sure. animals, right? But um, I have also met people who say, you know, domesticated animals are important to maintain. And the interesting thing about domesticated animals is they pull at our heartstrings more mm-hmm. than, than wild animals do. Uh, there's a study that shows that a, a dog has more facial muscles than a wolf does, and they have more facial muscles mm-hmm. so that they can make expressions that find adorable. And I think that you might see something like that. Cows and chickens and pigs are also cute. So I think that we have this emotional attachment to these animals. But if there were a few of them in zoos around the world, I think that that would be really great and they could have really good lives. I used to be, when I was really hardcore, against people having any domesticated animals. But now I see that actually all animals have suffering in their lives. If you look at a fox or a mouse or a bird, they all have predators. They can die of parasitic infection. They all have problems in their lives. I think that the average dog, you know, so long it's not, it's not like a pug or a, one of those King Charles Spaniels or whatever animals that have a lot of different health problems, I think that the average dog lives probably a better life than the average wild animal. And so I'm not against uh, people uh, having such animals anymore. You know, obviously those animals usually eat meat, which I think is a problem. I don't know if I answered your question at all. <laughs> no, no, I'm just, this is something I'm super curious with because I just wonder, I just want to ha- make sure that we're running enough experiments where we're not interfering with animals. Because I think that allowing other species to evolve in the most voluntary way possible is really, really important because we need as many biological experiments running on the planet as we, as we can kind of. So I view the domestication as animals as if taken too far it's an impediment to allowing new new species to like adapt and evolve and stuff like that but that's interesting i've never heard this argument before so yeah. you think that domestication is actually reducing species diversity it's sort of gentrifying the animals oh, uh, absolutely it's a major problem that i think on average one species a day has gone extinct in the since the the history of the planet has been around and i think the fact that 99.9 percent of species go extinct is uh, is terrifying and we need to figure it out and, and solve it. So yeah, it's kind of like race against time and we, yeah, we need to get that solved like really fast. I'm not saying that every species needs to survive, but I, I think that it's, uh, yeah, because otherwise it's just such a brutal world where it's like, how are we going to preserve 
the best ideas and the biology and the the history of these species. Like we might need it at some point in the future. Um, you have so many different medicines that are created from these animals, and there's so many different technologies now that are biomimetic in in nature that we need to make sure we're not losing the best examples from the gene pool, kind of or or whatever. So, Diana, what's you mentioned your project students, but what's most exciting for you right now? Is it writing the book? Is it teaching? Yeah, what's the best part of your life? So right now, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be giving several talks about a variety of different topics. I'm really excited about that. I'm really excited about doing more public outreach. I'm really excited about doing the book. I'm also going to be moving to the United States to get married. Are you moving here per- permanently? Probably. Oh, we'll nice. see. What took you so long? I'm just kidding. I've been over here in the UK for like eight years. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's my job here has been really, really wonderful. I'm just not sure you know, exactly what the future holds, but I am starting a new chapter that's probably going to be slower, more domestic, getting married, that kind of stuff in my life. And that's really exciting to me because I have, I have waited a while and I have had a really exciting and really fulfilling several years here in the UK, but yeah, new chapters are necessary to open. So yeah, the, the book and research and outreach is all stuff that I'm super, super excited about. And I'm super lucky to be able to yeah, pursue the thoughts that interest me. Absolutely. Congratulations. And what's the uh, game plan for you professionally when you get here? Are you like way more lectures, way more book writing, or are you going to keep teaching? I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm drafting, finishing drafting a book proposal. I'm going to get an advance and write a book and then we'll see how that goes. I know that writing a book is really difficult. I don't think it necessarily comes naturally to everybody. Right now, you know, before this interview started, you said, I write every day. And if I don't write every day, I lapse. I have not been writing every day. And that's something that people have definitely told me about. So I just have to see if I take to it. If writing a book, once I really get started and and in earnest, if it comes naturally to me and I have a lot more ideas that I want to put out in the world, then I would love to write full time. But writing is a struggle. And it's a struggle even for people who are really, really great at it. So if I don't end up doing that, I will probably yeah get another academic position or I will work on research in some way, shape or form. So I'm starting a new venture and I have to see, you know, if I take to that. And most people, you know, they follow their dreams, but they don't think that much about whether or not they're actually good at what they want to do. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, for me, I am really carefully considering whether or not writing full-time is going to be the kind of thing that it will be good for me because I am really extroverted. I love to be around people and it is hard for me to be locked away in the ivory tower all day. So I have to think about what's going to suit my personality and my skills best. Yeah. So just food for thought for whatever it's worth. I think that the model of the writer and author right now was just like a very temporary thing that people who are very creative had to endure um, it's just like a weird economic thing that we're passing through where I think all the big four, the big four, big five publishers, whatever it is now, have no idea what's going on. They don't have real business models. And because of it, the writers and authors that they represent or have working for them are suffering unnecessarily. Like it's first world suffering. But I think that the idea that you're just a writer or something like that is uh, really damaging. And I think we have to leave that behind um, because it's there's so much social isolation and if we look at the books that survive the longest, they're typically written by groups of people or they're written by a team of like 12 people. So yeah, I think the traditional model of publishing is uh, almost dead. 
Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm trying to do something experimental as well. So I mean, moving to the States for a while, but I have a friend who's also working on a book and his wife, they have no attachment to any particular place. I invited them to come and live with us. Oh, cool. I hope, and they're, you know, they're young and they're hustling and I really think that it's going to be a good influence on us. And I do. That's the way to do it. Isolated nuclear family thing that people do these days is really profoundly unnatural. And I've always wanted to live in more of a community and certainly have more social interactions built into my day-to-day life. And that's another challenge that I'm considering about how to be most fulfilled and absolutely groups of people, you know, starting to do uh, YouTube and other kind of collaborative projects when I finish here in July and August and thinking about how to blend that in with my social life in the way that's most fulfilling. Yeah. It's been said that the nuclear family is a cesspool for neurosis. And I think that like the extended family and uh, bringing your friends in to your life, however you can, is just so, so important. Diana, thanks for joining us today. Is there anything you would leave our listeners with, whether it's like a call to action or thought experiment or uh, final words of wisdom? Oh, I never know how to answer these questions. <laughs> like the final call to action question. Um, no, I actually don't have anything. <laughs> too much okay. It can't. It can't be. I'm, I'm glad. I'm just glad you didn't say that they should sabotage a factory farm because that would have been just completely, <laughs> completely horrible. Don't do that, everybody. Diana, thanks for joining us. Oh no, no. Let me let me, let me say more things since we're yeah. really with this anyway. Um, yeah, I would say that obviously listen to the series of interviews about effective altruism. Look into effective altruism and try to think about how to put what you feel are your most important prioritizations morally into action in your day to day life. And there can be small ways and large ways to do that, but I think that everybody would find their lives more fulfilling if they were in some way putting their highest moral goods into practice. Wise words. Thanks for listening, everyone. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.